HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hola, mi gente, familia. I'm really excited to be back for another episode of Cooking in Mexican from A to Z. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron Sanchez, alongside my beautiful mother. Serena Martinez. Yes, of course. And here we are. And mom, we're really excited. We have this very special guest that's going to be joining us today. And we're going to be talking about a subject that I think has not been touched at all when it comes to Mexican ingredients, culture, how its influence has permeated you know, where we are right now. And this is the idea of whiskey consumption and production in Mexico, right? So when you're talking about that, we know that Mexicans are huge consumers of whiskey. Um, Now, what we're going to try to tackle today is we're going to figure out how is it being made in Mexico artisanally and and beyond? How is this sort of uh, affinity with whiskey grown in in recent years or been there for a long time? And, And you and I, Mom, are really excited about this one because we're going to be educated by our wonderful guest. And of course, we're talking about uh, Shelly Sakier. Uh, Sakier? Oh, I like how you pronounce it the first time. Sa- yes, yeah, Sakier. Yeah, it's so, much prettier. <laughs> yeah, yes. And of course, Sakier. Mm-hmm. Sakier, but yeah, uh, she's our wonderful guest here. And, and, and Shelly is the Director of Distillery and Education at Reservoir Distillery in Virginia. Uh, her trip and her journey uh, in the world of whiskey has really been something that's very, very ephemeral and obviously very impactful for her where she studied at an unbelievable distillery and get a load of this it's called Brukil. okay uh, okay don't get mad at me but say it please Shelly it's Brukladi. 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 okay good cool. try though lots of people no. slaughter it it's okay <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give you some Aztec words and see how you pronounce those. Anyway, no, no, cool. see, most Gaelic is best pronounced in the middle of a sneeze <laughs> with somebody thumping you on your back. I love that. And then, so apart from that, um, for the past 25 years, she has devoted her efforts to creating um, plain spoken, also easygoing and a beautiful approach to whiskey. And I think uh, whiskey is something that has to be demystified, understood 
and we're really excited. Uh, she just recently released this beautiful book called Make It a Double, and I'm sure she's going to talk a little bit about that. But welcome. Welcome, Shelly. We're happy to have you. Hello, Chef Zarela and, and Chef Aaron. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, I am really excited and honored to be speaking with both of you because it is clear to me just how much Mexico comes alive in your stories, you know, in your in your cooking, in your restaurants, with the people that you interview on your podcast, with the products that they all make and that they sell and, and you know, that they're preserving because of these exceptional histories that are attached to those goods. And it's something that truly resonates with me because I stand behind the belief that every place and every region has a story to tell. And the people who reside upon that patch of earth, they are the keepers of these stories, right? They are the souls that keep the threads of that tapestry together. And there is this burden placed upon each one of us if we care enough uh, to, you know, to help those people succeed as as the weavers and as the storytellers of that special and unique place. So therefore, what you are both doing through all of your endeavors is so very special and so very important. And I thank you for that. And no doubt your listeners do as well. That's lovely. That's one of the reasons that I also wanted to, to talk to you because I have a friend in Oaxaca, who with her husband is putting out this new whiskey called Maiz Nation. But she's involved with all the artisans working with their, you know, their silk growing, their coloring, their, their corn, uh, you know, warehouses, so that every, every resident of the town has his corn there, his seeds, and if he goes to the United States, to work and comes back and it didn't work out, he has his seeds there still. And it's all very connected and they're, they're making their, with their, their mezcal with, I mean, their whiskey with native corn and in Oaxaca. Yeah, and we're talking about Yida, mom. We're talking about Yida, a good, a good friend of ours. And, and, and she is a huge proponent for exactly like you're saying, mom, taking uh, a corn-based whiskeys and bringing them to market. And, and I think that's something super important. And, and as to alluded, mom, I think the corn gives such sustenance in many different ways and all the different elements of the corn are utilized as you just mentioned, mom, so eloquently. Um, so if we can just get a little bit of background with you, Shelly, where did your love affair, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say, it's not like food where you could be like, I was a kid and fell in love <laughs> with whiskey. You know what I mean? It's more like, like, you know what I mean? Like, what, you know, where did, when did your love affair with this beautiful, this beautiful journey that you, that you're on start and hopefully at 21? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, not, not very far away from it. So, um, the, the first time I laid eyes on a dram of scotch or, or brown spirit of any, of, of any sort for that matter, uh, I was on my inaugural visit to Scotland and I was a fresh 22-year-old who possessed an insufferably cocky confidence about myself and about the world that I was traveling. Uh, and my soon-to-be husband took charge of my initiation into this country, so into Scotland. So after we hunted through castles and were traversing around gleaming locks and scrabbling across architectural ruins and, and basically scarfing down my body weight in meat pies and milk stouts, 
uh, he felt it was time that I did some barrel hugging. And uh, although he was an Englishman and he would never, never have been caught dead doing such an American act. Uh, But he took me to a Highland distillery on the west coast of Scotland. It's a beautiful place called Oban. And following the tour, you know, after seeing the malting floors and the the massive mash tuns and the washbacks that are holding all these these beautiful fermenting grains and and the the squat and and bulbous shiny copper pots that that uh, are distilling distilling that that liquid into that elixir, um, then I was handed a tulip shaped glass and I was told just how lucky I was to be experiencing one of the best whiskeys in the world. So I took a sip and I did not feel so lucky. I felt duped. I felt betrayed by the man who stood next to me, who was now staring glassy-eyed into his own drink. And I felt hoodwinked by a company, you know, the distillery company that surely just pitied all the touring visitors that they gathered, you know, looking at them and thinking, oh, these guys would make great townspeople for the next parade of the emperor's new clothes. So I not so quietly expressed my dislike for the drink and then asked why anybody could be conned into taking another sip of this. And I was abruptly ushered out of the building and then told to keep stum. So In the evening, before dinner, the barkeep from our hotel asked if I would like to have a dram to keep me warm while I was looking at the menu. And uh, my nettled fiancé suggested... But what is a dram? Just for our our listeners, I'm sorry. A dram is just, it's like around about an ounce or so of, of, uh, of, of whiskey. So a very, very small amount. It's not meant to be knocked back. It's meant to be enjoyed in very, very small, small sips. Uh, so the, the, you know, my, my fiance, he was just, uh, utterly perturbed and he, he suggested that the barman basically just keep his precious gold because, you know, my tongue was woefully uneducated. And then after hearing what I had been given, the barman blamed my companion for introducing me to the wrong end of the whiskey spectrum. And he, it agreed. He, he agreed. I had been given poison. Or maybe he actually said something like, uh, I'd been given a flavor profile that was unpalatable to the uninitiated, blah, 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 whatever. But it, to me, it sounded like he agreed that I'd been given poison. But he begged that I try again. But this time, with a glass of something he described that sounded much more like a marmalade cosmopolitan than, you know, the smoky, spicy bite of, of the previous offering that I'd had earlier. So I took a sip of this. And it was warm and heady, and it brought back all the memories of the spellbinding sights and the smells and the flavors that I had been racking up while touring around the country. Just, you know, everything bloomed within that glass. And, and at that moment, I felt a positional shift, right? So Scotland had discovered how to transform a seductive come-hither glance into, into liquid form, and I was absolutely hooked. So from here on out, I wanted to know everything. I knocked on the back doors of every distillery I could find. I bought a bazillion textbooks and, you know, I wanted to understand the science and the chemistry and, and, the, and the machinery. I, I wanted to find people to teach me how flavor is created. And eventually I snagged this internship, you know, one of the most famous and 
sigh-worthy distilleries in the whole world. It's this place off the west coast of Scotland called Bruchladi. And that is where I truly learned how whiskey is made from grain to glass. And then fly forward another several years and I'm in the middle of researching a book that I was writing. And so I was seeking out uh, a local uh, distillery called Reservoir because they weren't so far from me. And I was trying to speak with a distiller or an operator on the production room floor. And I ended up getting into a conversation with the owner, Dave Kutno. And after just a tiny bit of chatter, he says, um, why aren't you working in a distillery? And then before I could say, because I already have a job as an author, uh, he said, you are going to come work in my distillery and we are going to squeeze out every last drop of information you possess about whiskey. Just squeeze it right out of you. So there we have it. I don't know if, you know, uh, you know, Andrea Emmer is my, like my wine guru, one of the few master sommelier, female master sommeliers. Is there a huge presence of Scotch uh, masters and tastemakers and, and, and whiskey, you know, producers, or how does that work? Do you, apart from the internship, how long does that take, is my point. I, I think the answer to that is how quickly can you learn, right? Exactly. And, uh, and how hungry are you uh, to, to learn all that information? Because for some people, it's a lifelong pursuit. And for other people, they want to get into the industry, get a footing right away. Uh, and so they will do whatever they can in order to um, muscle their way into a position. So for me, I've been working with Reservoir for about five years. Um, but, you know, I, I was super lucky in order to have a job that was crafted specifically for me. And I don't think that that happens to a lot of people. So uh, I, I, I think I just, you know, found a four leaf clover at Reservoir. <laughs> was really lucky. <laughs> and what do you have to learn? What are like the four things you have to learn about making whiskey? Well, you know, I suppose we could start off with the with the question, how do we define whiskey? Right. Um, because legally it's really complicated. Uh, but we 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 know we basically can just use the easy definition and say whiskey is a distilled spirit made from water and yeast and grain. Now, uh, we are ruled by the TTB. That's the Alcohol, Tobacco, Tax and Trade Bureau. A mouthful for sure. Uh, but these guys are the legislative body in the United States that, you know, I always liken them to the IRS if the IRS was having a really bad day and looking to kick down a bunch of little kids' sandcastles. Um, they make our life really, really tricky. But they're, they are their rule makers for what defines all categories of whiskeys. And there are probably more categories of whiskeys than I have had hot dinners. Uh, now, you know, what makes a whiskey great is another interesting question because uh, I would probably have to give you a cheeky answer like, well, it makes your mouth go yum, right? But um, maybe the better question would be, what would what would make an award-winning whiskey? And that would be a very different answer because judges or, you know, people who are of influence, like, you know, reviewers and whatnot, they tend to look at a whiskey's complexity with both scent and flavor. And they're, they're typically wanting to see that a whiskey is going to um, not only have a distinct favorable primary aroma and flavor, but that it's also going to express like secondary and tertiary ones as well. So they think about things like mouthfeel and balance and a whiskey's finish, you know, like how long does its flavor last? And, uh, or, or things like they look at the whiskey's faults, right? Is it one dimensional? Is it thin? Is the texture prickly or hot or burning? And, you know, does it 
contain off notes that might indicate that you've got a problem with the ingredients, like the production process or with the the maturation process. So, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new series on Heritage Radio Network called The Culinary Call Sheet, where we give a peek into the back kitchen of culinary media. I'm your host, April Jones. And I'm your co-host, Darren Bresnitz. Part of why we started this show was to offer an unofficial mentorship for anyone who is interested in learning about all aspects of food and video, whether that's TV, social media, online, or just something you want to do for fun. Absolutely. What was once niche or a little silly, as I'm sure you remember, Darren, when we started out. Yes, ma'am. Has now become such a massive playing field for so many creatives using food as the medium. It's something that has driven us professionally and personally for so many years. What excites me the most about this show is that we're going to sit down with some of the industry leaders to hear how they made it and what drew them into this industry. With 20 years in the culinary production game ourselves, we're hoping we can give, through these conversations, an insider's view into personal stories from the field, as well as an in-depth behind-the-scenes look into some of the most popular food programming in today's evolving culinary media landscape. We'll be covering everything from how to style your food, to how to license IP, to developing your own ideas, and some tips from the masters of how to host your own show. Yeah, it's a little bit of conversation, how to, and how do you do the things that you do in culinary media, which I'm so excited about. I love so many of the guests that are coming on this season. We have talent from Food Network, from Vice Media, Eater, Refinery29. We've met some of the best people in the world, both in front of and behind the camera. And we're bringing them all together to share their stories, their delicious adventure, and their unique journey into this crazy world. So to be the first to hear our episodes when they launch this fall, go to wherever podcasts are streaming and hit subscribe and make sure to give us a follow at the Culinary Call Sheet on Instagram. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. So, I mean, obviously, I think that we can bring it to, like, Mexico if, 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 if we're cool. Because I'm sure that there's, you know, corn being a New World ingredient. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're not making corn whiskey in Scotland. Or I could be, I could be wrong. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm asking... 
they, yes, there there is corn now being distilled all over the world. So, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things, one of those commodities that is not only, of course, a food staple, but now is being distilled as a spirit. And specifically in Scotland, the primary grain there happens to be, you know, barley uh, and wheat is also used, but they they have blended uh, whiskeys and whatnot that use other grains. So rye is there, corn is there. But specifically when we when we tend to think about Scotland, we think about more malted barley and whatnot. But um yeah, I mean, corn is just such an important uh, thought of the the myriad factors that influence the flavor profiles in whiskey. And good Lord, we, we all need to send Oaxaca a giant thank you basket for, you know, being the the provider of, uh, of, of so much that we enjoy today. And, you know, it's a, the, the artist Francisco Toledo made it uh, the only state in Mexico that's completely NG. And no GMO. Yeah, this is this is something that's uh, you know incredibly important uh, when we're, when we're thinking about like the what's happening in the world uh, of of different countries and how they're expressing their distillation. So uh, you know, I'm I'm sure. Um, this is not at all new to either one of you, Chef Aron or Chef Zarela, but, uh, you know, one of the fascinating things I know about Mexico is the existence and cultivation of the community seed banks that are protect, protecting the the, the, you know, that diversity of their, their regional and ancestral grains. So um, there's one that I've read about, which I just, uh, I really like the way that they, that they work. I think it's down in the township of Valle Nacional. Um, and it, it's where they, you know, they're collecting seeds from the farmers across the region and uh, they're planting the, the corn, they're growing the corn, then they're harvesting those seeds for the bank. And then when farmers are in need of that particular seed, the bank loans them 10 kilos of that seed on the condition. Well, that's, what I was yeah. that's, that's, that's what I was talking about earlier. It's fantastic. You know, they have to give back 20 when they're, when they're given 10. It's just so well thought out. And uh, I think that there are, are, are so many things that we could be learning from that, that practice. It's just, it's so admirable. It's so smart. And it's also becoming so necessary. Well, I love that idea of, of the fact that somebody's going to go up, up to the United States to work, but before he goes, he takes a, a postal, you know, of his, of his seed to be saved in the, in the library, whatever you call it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like a seed bank, you know, basically in essence yeah, so is what he, we're, yeah, a seed bank, yeah. And, and then if, he, if he decides to come back, if he decides to come back, just he goes and gets some of his seed from the seed bank and then he can continue with the variety that that he plants has planted all his life. Yeah, I think there is an enormous amount of power in provenance. And um, I think that whiskey drinkers in particular are paying attention to that more than ever. You know, they want to explore and support more deeply the places that spirits are made and the people behind that key craftsmanship and the purpose for creating those spirits. And in my opinion, it feels clear to me that, you know, Mexico has long held that mindset, not only about the myriad goods that they manufacture, but, you know, also about their way of life and the culture that's steeped within it and the livelihoods that they choose that are going to support and protect both of those things. So I think there's a huge market for, for Mexico and Mexican whiskey. Every afternoon, my father, who was an alcoholic, 
at four o'clock in the afternoon would have his first glass of cutty sharp Ugh. at the beginning. I know, but that was a, we lived in a ranch in Chihuahua. What can I tell you? That's what he could get. And then, then afterwards, he he went to Johnny Walker Black or Red, and he stayed there forever. And most Mexicans do not drink tequila uh, like a shot or anything like that. They drink Johnny Walker Black or Red and soda, and that's that's their drink of choice. I I have a. Uh... I, I have done a little bit of, of looking at as far as like the consumption within Mexico. And I was really surprised at the numbers, you know, that although the, the numbers of, of, of people who are consuming whiskey within Mexico are growing, you know, there's the money that's dished out for bottles and brands is uh, that trajectory is upward. So there's, there's a great amount of interest, there's support, um, the access is increasing for people to be able to get a hold of it. But most of that data is all for whiskey that are made outside of Mexico, right? So um, I think in, in looking at the most recent data that I could come up with, um, uh, tequila was still the most uh, um, consumed spirit in Mexico of about 33%. But right behind that at 30% was whiskey. And then everything else was just in single digit numbers. But of course, that 30% is so much that comes from outside of Mexico. But since there's this this want, right, one can only imagine the reception that Mexicans would offer up to support their own country's story in the form of liquid gold. So not necessarily, not necessarily, because they have this thing about the la malinche, something is called malinchismo, that they prepare, they prefer foreign things. Really? Some people, yeah, they do. I mean, but but maybe not in the whiskey because there's a great interest in in, in artisanal mezcal and and tequila and. Yeah, mom, but that's a, that's a broad state, mom, mom. But what you know? Yeah, I understand. You know, but. We're talking you know, I, to, um, yeah, go ahead. I, I think uh, one of the surprising uh, things, or maybe it's not so surprising, it's millennials who are really pushing the data at this point as far as like where their interest lies. And sometimes they're the ones who want to try the newest thing, the latest thing. And uh, they that group of individuals is pushing toward trying um, uh, things that are much more uh, in keeping with the subject matters that are very important to them, right? So when you're when you're thinking about how it is that the support of the community, um, so you know they're 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 looking at the best practices from specific companies that they're purchasing, right? So they're purchasing grains from local farmers. They want to support that, uh, you know, especially if they're protecting and preserving the the, the heirloom grains uh, that are struggling against some of those, you know, expensive commodity grains that are trying to push them out, or or. They're looking at, you know, what does this company, who does this company hire and train? Are they training local people to help them thrive professionally within the business? Are they protecting the resources that, that uh, you know, the, the company, like the distillery might be using, like recycling waters that are needed for production or or, you know, are they, you know, putting in geothermal systems to capture and utilize the heat that's generated on production room floors? Um, you know, and... What kind of, what- what kind of water do they use? What kind of water? Oh, water is such a, a fascinating subject in the world of whiskey. Uh, 
stop me when you get bored. Uh, no, <laughs> no, 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 we're here. It no, is we just... don't get bored. We're, we're, we're ears open. Trust me. We, we're nerds like this. We like this stuff. <laughs> People of my own heart. Um, mm. The water that's used in production and proofing, you know, is a huge, huge thing within the whiskey making uh, process. And, and a lot of people just are unaware of the influence that it has, or they might deny uh, that it actually exists. And I mean, people who are denying it are people who work within the industry. But, you know, when you think about how many brands or states or countries, you know, Kentucky or Tennessee or Scotland or Japan, all these people who are mentioning their water sources in their marketing, it definitely has to be given consideration. So when I look at the whole process from like a 30,000 foot view, making whiskey is simply a matter of adding and subtracting water repeatedly from the product from the moment we start to the moment that we finish. So we uh, to, to say that again, Shelly, because I think that's a super important point. It is. Can you just say it one more time? I'm sorry. I will. Yeah. When whenever I'm looking at the, the whole process from a 30,000 foot view of making whiskey, I tell people that making whiskey is simply a matter of adding and subtracting water repeatedly from the product from the moment we start to the moment we finish. So as an example we add water to our mash, right, to the grain. And then we subtract water through the heating of that grain and through the distillation of that grain. And then we add water to the distillate. That's the the pure, um, uh, clear spirit that comes off the still. We add water to that and we add water to the barrel. And we subtract water from those barrels from evaporation in the warehouse because of climate. And then we add water to most bottles, to the whiskey just before we put them in bottles. And then some people will add water to the to their glasses once they have the whiskey poured inside of them so ah so it's totally natural to i mean because like when i have a mezcal i don't want to dilute that product but in a weird way when you have a whiskey it's sort of permissible to put water on it right or absolutely absolutely water is it is such an incredible vehicle to use because water adds flavor both good and bad Right, so we've got mineral content from the air. Uh, we have uh, influences from the earth, like you know, groundwater absorbs the minerals from the earth, and it, that it's filtering through, like pesticides and herbicides, chemicals, all sorts of things. We have influences from the sea, right? So we've got those medicinal and iodine and briny notes that come in. We have influences from contaminants, so you got to think about that. From freezer burn, you know, who has mm. never had an ice cube that totally ruined your drink? Um, and even, you know, some people would say that uh, viscosity of water can add uh, something to that that whole flavor complex, that, that feel of it. So, but adding water to your drink, to a spirit, can absolutely make those aromatic compounds blossom right inside the glass. So it's not necessarily diluting it. Sometimes, and I'm sorry if I'm getting in the weeds here, but sometimes adding water helps with a, uh, an experience, a process called chemstesis. And chemstesis is basically just a chemical reaction that's happening to your, uh, to your, to the sensors on your skin. It's really... It's actually quite fascinating because uh, everybody's had chemstesis happen to them hundreds, if not thousands of times, especially if you like to eat, right? So if you're a chef, everybody knows about this. So if you like hot and spicy foods, uh, you know, the hot peppers, they've got 
capsaicin or capsaicin in them. That creates a thermal reaction on your tongue. If you like uh, peppermint or wintergreen or, or, you know, any cooling kind of a thing, that creates that cooling sensation on your, on your receptors. Or CO2, like carbonated beverages, that's a tingling sensation. Alcohol creates a prickling sensation on your tongue. So in order to eliminate that, you add some water, that viscosity helps eliminate chemstesis and makes everything blossom. My, no, no, Shelly, I want to sit next to you on a long trip, okay? Because <laughs> I'm going to be that much smarter afterwards. I mean, really, really impressive stuff. Oh, man. Mom? <laughs> there's, this, there's this, that, wonderful, that, that wonderful line from uh, Joaquin Sabina. It says, Nuestro amor duró lo, lo que dos peces de hielo en un fuiscan de rocks. Mm -hmm. He said, our love lasted as long as two fish ice ice cubes in a glass of whiskey on the rocks. Oh my gosh. Exactly. I I, that it. is so beautiful. I want to have that tattooed somewhere on my body. Yeah. <laughs> so let, let's talk about, you know, let's talk about, so kind of, you know, getting to that wonderful place of how whiskey has permeated Mexico um, and, and, and started to really start to get a footing and also, um, but as far as an artisanal point of view, right? Like we know that Mexicans love Bucanins and they love Johnny Walker, you know, and all of that. And trust me, I know a lot about all that business, but let's talk about a little bit more of the artisanal approaches of whiskey that's happening in Mexico currently and how exciting this movement is. Yes. Uh, so I am aware of uh, about three three specific craft distilleries in in Mexico. So I've only been lucky enough to taste one from uh from one of those distilleries. Uh and believe me, I have hunted down every person I know who might have access to any Mexican whiskey in Richmond, Virginia, and I've found only one bottle. This is just terrible. Well, you should contact my my friend Yida. You should, maybe you should go visit that don't think I need to Yes, I would love to taste their their whiskeys. And they're lovely. Sadly they're it, it did that whiskey did not come from Ira's distillery. So, um, but the the one that it I did really. taste uh, was made by Sierra Norte, and uh, um, you know, the... very similar to what Jonathan Barbier uh is. Oh, that's that's Ira's husband. Yes, that's that's uh, from from what he's making in in May's Nation. It's very similar. The the Sierra Norte is uh, making whiskeys that are primarily from ancestral non GMO heirloom corn uh, and that they're farmed by traditional farmers in Oaxaca. Uh, I think the distiller's name is Douglas French, if I remember correctly. Um, but, uh, you know, his his whiskeys, I think basically, and, and the third distillery there is uh, making a whiskey that, that we briefly touched on before, Abasalo. Uh, again, another ancestral corn whiskey. Um, and I would give my left lung just to get a hold of uh, of all three of them. I just want to try them. But the, the one I did taste um, was uh, there. They, they gave such beautiful, beautiful tasting notes. They said it has flavors like swirling notes of blue iris. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what blue iris tastes like, so um, that one was lost um, on me. But um, or they said dried chilies. Definitely got that. And fresh linen, which I have never, never heard in the description of a of a whiskey before. Uh, they they said it's that it was Mexican. Is it fresh linen? Is a very Mexican kind of smell. No, no, no. But that's they're just wax poetic. 
Oh, it does wax. Yes, I, I love the poetry. I do love the poetry. Of and you know, and you know, and I live in New Orleans. And you know why we serve red beans and rice on Mondays? Do you know why? I don't. Because Mondays back in the day was when we did laundry in New Orleans. So you needed a one pot dish that cooked all day, and with rice that you can serve after you did your laundry. Oh, I and, love that. And, and but that that smell of fresh laundry. Mm. It's something that's very important. It's very family. Everybody can relate to that. Oh, I think so too. You know, they other flavors that they're that they're um, pulling inward, like marmalade, tangy marmalade, and maple syrup, and pepper, and spicy honey. These are all flavors that you know uh, are not necessarily just regional, but like cross over to a wide palate. They just uh, appeal to lots and lots of people, and it can be difficult. You know, when you're trying to uh, capture certain flavor profiles and capture an audience with certain flavor profile, if you can't describe that flavor profile to somebody who doesn't live in that country and know what you're talking about, um, it can be difficult to build that audience. So like in Scotland, they they have a, a description for um, for some whiskeys, which are very medicinal or antiseptic, and it's called TCP. They'll just everybody's like, oh, this is just full of TCP. And Nobody else, apart from citizens of the UK, know what TCP is because it's a trade name for a, for a mouthwash, right? We don't have that here. But but mm. I like the way that that uh, the Mexican whiskeys I've come across are describing themselves. They're just they're very homey and warm and spicy and just. Uh, you know, it makes you feel like you are already in that country and familiar with it. Those that that scent and flavor profile. I love it. Can't wait to try it. No, no. And I also don't think that they're very hot, you know, meaning that they have high alcohol content. Like the, the Mexican whiskeys I've tasted, the one I carry that you alluded to earlier at the restaurant, I find it tastes it tastes like like caramel popcorn, which is an obvious flavor profile. But it's it's very it's not uh, uh, abrasive as far as the palate. And, and, and I think that's wonderful because. You know, when you're introducing new flavors and new spirits to an audience, it can't be such a punch in the face. It has to be something, you know what I mean, that, that has wide appeal. I, I so, you know? uh, Chef, I so agree with you. Um, and, and I, you know, one word of advice, which is always when when anybody is trying uh, a new spirit for the first time, you you need to read that label and determine what is the proof. And uh, if if some of your audience members aren't you know familiar with what the word proof means, proof is just basically talking about the strength of whiskey. And uh, there's a great old story I have told a million times about uh, how proof is synonymous with the the British Royal Navy. And as far back as like 19 sorry uh, like 1655 all the way through up. Till 1970, the the sailors, the British sailors on board ship, they were given a daily tot of rum. Uh, and um, but before before 1816, when the Sykes hydrometer, this was a, a piece of equipment that we now use to measure uh, the strength of whiskey or the strength of spirits. Before that was invented, these sailors had to come up with like a really interesting way to determine just how strong that that rum was. So they they crafted this sort of an over under method where they took a little bit of the rum and they mixed it with gunpowder to form a paste. And then they did what mothers of teenage boys all around the world fear most of all. They tried to light it on fire. 
right? <laughs> so if it lit, then they knew that they had a spirit that was 57% ABV or higher. If it did not ignite, then it was a very low proof. And they were hugely upset with the government because they were promised a very specific strength of rum. So that's basically how the, you know, the, the terminology proof came. These guys, if it lit, had they had to proof. proof. It, yeah. yeah. They had proof oh, that their spirit Oh, that's a great story. Holy it is shit. a really cool story. I never knew that. Mom, did you know that? Uh, no, of course not. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mom's, of course not. I mean, that is amazing. That's why we have you on. That's why we have you on. But, you know, if, if the whiskey that you're serving or the whiskey that you're trying anywhere around in the world is too hot and prickly, too spicy on your tongue, add water. It just lowers the proof. Gets rid of that chemstesis. Or two fish and two fish ice cubes. <laughs> two, yes. two fish yeah. ice cubes. That'll work Indeed. too. Um, you know, here on Cooking in Mexico from A to Z on Heritage Radio Network. And if you want to engage with more of our wonderful guests and my mom and myself, please visit heritageradionetwork.org. And then there's tons of information and wonderful ways to interact and and connect with our beautiful guests. And with that being said, Michelle, how can people reach out to you? Because we're all about we're Mexicans, but we're also shameless pluggers. So I don't know why, <laughs> what, why that kind of came together, but it just, tell me how people can react, uh, re, uh, connect with you. Absolutely. Well, they can go to my personal website, which is just ShellySackier.com, uh, or you can go to where I work at the distillery. That's ReservoirDistillery.com. There's all sorts of information as to how to get a hold of me or get a hold of the book or learn more about whiskey. And I pray, uh, Chef Zarela and Chef Eron, that the next time we are together, we will have a chance to talk about how to cook with whiskey. I would love that because I had no idea. Yeah, how to do that. I and, have. And, 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 and I, I don't even want to open up the subject because it's going to create <laughs> another two hours of conversation. But exactly. I'm like. Exactly. You have to have me, me back time. on. You need of to course. have me back on so we oh can talk God. about the most important thing, which is cooking, right? Of course. I love that. <laughs> well, I think equally important. Equally yes, important. Ma'am. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> But anyway, what a what a wonderful guest you were. Thank you. Oh, I'm so so honored to be here with both of you. My whole family are chefs and uh, and and butchers and caterers and and everybody was just so excited to find out that I was going to have a chance to have a conversation oh. with you. So thank you. No, we are honored. Contrary, we are honored because you know uh, my mom and I. Um, it, all we're trying to do is preserve this beautiful legacy of food, culture, spirits, you know, all of that. And, and, and you are just added so much to that mission. So well, thank you very much. As, as much as your enthusiasm is for Mexico, my whole family feels that same way about Poland. We're all about Polish cooking. So we'll have cool. lots to talk about next time. All right, mom. So we're going to do cooking in, cooking in Polish from A to, a to Z next, okay? We're gonna do a special cooking in, in Polish from A to Z. And we're gonna whiskey. add whiskey into every recipe. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. Besos, querida. Whiskey bombs. <laughs> Gracias. Bye-bye. Thank Gracias, you so amiga. much. Besos. All right. Thank you. Bye. Cooking in Mexican from A to Z is powered by Simplecast. 
thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Una más en mis entrañas.